Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here for this interview episode with David Canfield. Hello. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. And you guys conducted our two interviews this week with two very different people who maybe uh, over the course of our introducing them will find some unexpected connections between. Um, But first, David, let's hear your conversation with Barry Keoghan, who was part of the outstanding ensemble cast of The Banshees of Inisherin from Martin McDonough. Um, What was talking to Barry like? He's a delight, and he's... A far cry from the <laughs> manipulative, menacing <laughs> characters he's no, been known for in the past. Uh, but in this movie, he plays a kind of lovable, tragic fool. <laughs> um, and and I, I would say his persona is maybe somewhere between the two types. <laughs> you know, I still think of him as the kid in Over His Head in Dunkirk. So maybe maybe that captured his essence in some way. There you go. Um, he He's really wonderful in this movie. I think the whole cast is. It's a pretty incredible company of four uh, core actors here. Um, and this was an experience for him that su- was surprising to me. Um, he was coming off of a really difficult personal period, and he kind of just got lost on this island in this story and really, I think, valued the collaboration he was able to have with Martin McDonough, Colin... Uh, Farrell, with whom he's worked before, um, and and a story that seemed to hit him pretty close to home. Well, I can't wait to hear about all of that. Let's hear your conversation with Barry Keoghan. Hi, Barry. Welcome to Little Gold Men. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. We're talking to you about The Banshees of Inna Sharon, uh, which I think is one of the best films of the year. Oh, thanks, man. You play sweet, uh, poor Dominic. <laughs> um, poor sweet Dominic. Eh? Poor sweet Dominic. Um, I, I would guess that the first time you read a Martin McDonough script, especially one that, that's this good uh, as an actor, is pretty exciting. I mean, again, you know, again, using the word feckin', that's how, you know, embedded <laughs> it is in me. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, reading, reading, reading the script for the first time, I was, it really did touch me. 
you know, I, I've never laughed as much either. Um, you know, and, and at the same time, I felt really sympathetic to, to Dominic and a, a lot of the characters as well. It was tragic. It was it was depressing. It was, I mean, there was a roller coaster in there for me, and and I went and read it straight away again, and then just text Martin. I was like, I want to do it. I mean, I was gonna do it either way. You know, as soon as I got the email off Mark McDonough, I'm like, I'm in. I don't even have to read it. I'm doing it. Yeah. Um, you weren't necessarily who I would have thought of for this kind of part. I mean that in the in the best way in terms, yeah, of, yeah. Your perfor- in terms of your performance. Did you see yourself in it immediately? I mean, how did you sort of figure the character versus who you've played and what this would be versus that? Yeah, you know what? I'm all about, you know, and I, I mean this in the best way and without coming across in, 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 in any other way, but I do look at the roles I play and, and, and how I can challenge myself in, in every role and... I do want people to kind of see range and and that I can go to other places rather than the sinister parts that I've, <laughs> I've played before. You know, you've got and, that and covered. Yeah, <laughs> I've got that covered, and you know, and I, this was a chance to kind of show that I can, you know, come across innocent with a bit of naivety, with a bit of you know, a pure soul and, and honesty, and so I, I really did want to tackle that, and you know, and the whole physical element of Dominic, I, I brought that into it and chat with Martin and. You know his traits and his his walk, his manner, his. You know, it's again for an actor it was a, a dream role, but I really did want to push it and, and 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 bring people into that kind of world of. You know, I can I can make you feel as well rather than make you hate me and and be sinister and with a absolute evil <laughs> demeanor. I did see that you described the Joker uh, who you play in, in the Batman and its final tag as a broken down boy. So there are some similarities. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> there is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But no, I, I do mean that in, in, you know, Martin's movies and, and scripts, they're all, you know, he's a playwright. He's, he's an incredible playwright. And, you know, there's that element to it there as well, that they're characters. Every, every character is so, so individual in that sense that, you know, they're so, you know, as an actor, they're so chunky and there's so much to dive into. And um, so he gave me a lot that I could work with. And we then we got discussing and and just, you know, we had different versions of Dominic that we wanted to to tell and, you know, how far we push him and, and you know, how we humanise him, how we, you know, those lots. But um, I had a feckin' dream on this. I really did. Yeah, I can I can tell it's it's a fun part, um, and I did want to ask you about the physicality because it's it's the kind of transformation you almost can't quite notice at first until you're like, mm-hmm. oh, this is you know you're walking in a totally different way, you're mm-hmm. moving your head in a totally different way, like step by step. What did that look like for you in just terms of finding that part of the character? And it, it was all it was all thought out, and it was you know I have these moleskin books and. I, you know, I have one book for physicality and one book for experiences that relate to my experiences, etc. And then I've one with random character questions, and I fill all of that in and see how I can change it up and and see how it all relates to me as well. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I I've done a lot of work on that and kind of being on the island as well. You you, you take that into factor and you look at you know rural Ireland to to inner city Dublin where I'm from and. You know, there's a big, big difference in how one holds themselves and that, and then the time period. But it was just kind of, you know, I, I thought of a fox a lot, you know, the kind of timid, shy, you know, intelligent, uh, as I think Dominic is really intelligent. I thought of that a lot as Dominic, you know, and very isolated on his own as well, um, and a survivor almost. 
There was a lot of that that went into it. And as well, I was going through a really tough time at that time as well, mm. personally as well. Um, so I think I was kind of in a haze as well that I couldn't get too deep into it and, and you know, preempt too much. But, yeah. Hmm. It's an emotionally intense role in a lot of ways too, just in terms of what he goes through. Mm-hmm. Given given what you were experiencing, did you find that overlap personally difficult at all? You know, I, I relate to a, a lot with Dominic. Um, I really do, and and I, I won't get into it. But like, he, he's um, he's just a pure, genuine soul. And he's got this attitude I, I I do admire of you know every day is a new day kind of attitude and. There's hope. He's always hoping and he's always wanting to to see the, the brighter side and and he has this kind of childlike factor as well. There is no there's no filter. When he says stuff, the way children say stuff to adults, they're not being considerate of their feelings really. You know, they're gonna say it what they what they think and be pure, honest. And I think Dominic has that. He sees it how it is and he says it how it is and you know, whether that hurts your feelings or not. I think that's a bit of energy injected into everyone else and you know he's that little kind of bright bit of positivity kind of hope in the movie along with Carrie's character as well I think no absolutely he he brings a he brings a light for sure mm-hmm. um it, it's interesting too because he you almost have to find your way into the story in a different way like when I think of killing of a sacred deer or, or even eternals you're playing manipulators you're playing mm-hmm. characters who manipulate the story and here he's it's kind of the opposite in a way where he's sort of finding his way in in a much more pure way and almost a, the forces around him are sort of dictating his journey no yeah and you did write the characters around him as well and but you know it's uh yeah you did write about eternals and and and, and that and sacred deer you know and, and the biggest the biggest challenge for me is i'm i'm the biggest i'm i'm, I'm the one that kind of you know, I have to prove wrong. I'm always the one kind of setting up challenges for myself. But it is nice to go and play a character like this and, and go against the grain almost and into what people are used to seeing me play. And it's fun. It's a breath of fresh air. It's, you know, being in that circle, that McDonough circle. You've got, you know, that caliber there. You've got Brendan, Colin, Kerry. It's, it's just, yeah, they, and they make it a lot easier as well. How did you find those rhythms? I mean, of the four main actors in the film, you are the, I believe, the only one who hadn't worked with Martin, you know, regularly before. Did they mm-hmm. have their kind of ways? Did you did you find your way in? What was that like? You know, I mean, very inviting. They were like, I met Martin. <laughs> I'd Martin on the front of my my phone. Long story. So long story short. <laughs> so I've this list of directors that. Um, I want to work with, and I've had it for ages. I had Yorgos under Chloe Zhao, and you know Emerald Fennel, and all these directors. You're checking and, them off. <laughs> and, and Martin was on it, and I then got an email from Martin saying, "I broke this script. I'd love you to play this part." And I was like, "Wow!" So then I went as far as putting Martin on the front of my phone, a picture of him, because I'm a, again, I'm a big believer in combination with being spiritual and you know, a lot of attraction and, you know, if you visualize it. And again, I sure. think it's vi- I think it's visualizing it, it to get the opportunities rather than get get it, it what it is you want. You to get the opportunity, I think, and then work for it. But anyways, I had him on the front of my phone and um 
you know, uh, literally, we de- he then set up a meeting in, in Midtown, New York, and he was like, let's go get, get some food and chat about this script. And, and it was up until I sat down and I was waiting on him to come in, he was still on the front of my phone. As I was like, I best remove this picture of Mark because he will <laughs> think I'm insane, man. He'll think, what a weird little kid. You know what? I'm going to pass on you. But yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was quite nice to get that email off him as well. Really, to be honest. Mm. He is one of the best and, 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 you know, so, so good in the sense of how he talks to his, to his, um, you know, to his actors and, and communicates and, and he was there again, he was there for me and he, he looked out for me and again, I was, you know, going through a bit of a tough one right before we, we, uh, we filmed and I got some sort of an infection in my arm and I was quite, you know, I was, I was in pain and stuff like that and it was, uh, it was a kind of a, an, an infection, but you know, and, and it was kind of a whether I could and not I could do the film because it was quite severe. And but Martin was there to, to guide me through it and remind me that we're in a, a good place to do this. And hmm. so I mean that when I say he's been there from the start and he's been, you know, any problems I had on set, him and Colin and Brendan and, and Kerry, you know, they were right beside me and. Because it is quite intimidating going into a Mark McDonough world and everyone's worked together already and you're kind of the newbie. Right. So he was alongside me, even delivering my lines for me at one stage and being like, Dominic does it this way and Dominic does it that way. And oh, um, wow. yeah. Wow. That's that's special, though. I mean, to have that kind of trust, I would think, in a company. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. And I do trust them a lot. Yeah. yeah. So I'm very, very grateful. Did you guys do rehearsal beforehand or or what was the what was the process of especially getting to the island and being in that bubble like and I just skipped the rehearsal because you know yeah. I I got this it's called necrotizing fasciitis but I got that infection I had to skip I couldn't literally do rehearsal so oh, I came wow. in quite late to it and again this is what I'm saying by so inviting and so so there for me and you know helped me get there it's um I didn't rehearse no I know Colin and that did. I, I mean, we read a few scenes here and there, and but um, in terms of doing a heavy rehearsal, I know the lads did, yeah. Hmm. Um, Brendan, Kerry, and, and, and Colin, but I didn't get a chance to. So Colin's an actor you've, of course, worked with before, and he's your, your I would say, your main scene partner here. Yeah. Um, so I think you guys kind of fell back into a, a dynamic to an extent. Yeah, we did. He's a... Uh, you know, Colin above all, he's just I mean I mean this in, in you know in, in the most um best way. He is like he's always been there for me. And any problems I've had or you know, he's there for advice and he's just such a great human being and, and, and a smashing actor that I, I continue to watch and learn from and any chance that I can and if Colin's involved, I'm there, I'm doing it. But he is, yeah. It was great to kind of team up with him again under a different, you know, movie. And uh, but that duo thing is quite nice that we we tend to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you do you do tend to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's also it's a, it's a more vulnerable kind of connection between you as actors, uh, just in terms of where the characters are. Mm-hmm. Did you see something new in him as an actor this time? And maybe did that bring something out in you? I'm, I'm just curious. I did. I, you know, I've seen him be so vulnerable. I remember seeing the film for the first time. I 
I texted him. I said, you and Brendan, like, you know, and, and Kerry, but I said, you know, because I was texting him, I was like, you give the best performance. I, I think, if you don't mind me saying, but I think you give the best performance of your life, man. It's like, you know, mm. he, I sympathized with him so much in it. You know, I felt for him. And he, physically, he's like, you know, the shoulders are down and it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And and to, to be with him in that, and I almost thought he was Dominic to Cullum, you know, to, to Brendan's character almost. You know, he was, uh, it was kind of like a mirror kind of thing going on. But I, I was just watching and learning and just seeing him taking it to a new level. He really was so immersed in it. How do you generally feel about, about watching yourself and how did you feel about watching yourself in this movie? I hate watching myself. I really yeah. do. I hate it. It's, you know, I mean, can you watch yourself back on podcasts? No, I, I don't even that? like this. I don't know. No, I mean, I'm like, <laughs> you know what? Uh, yeah. um, I do. I, it's, yeah, it's hard. I've seen it once. And again, I, I will watch it again. But, you know, we tend to be very, very critical of ourselves. And I, I just don't want to put myself in that place. But I also see it as a learning curve. And, and I don't ever want to get to a place where I think I absolutely nailed it. Because, again, there's no room for improving or and I constantly want to figure this craft out and what it is that I'm doing and you know that's the exciting part of it so I watch and I learn from, from myself and also from others um, but I, back to the question I don't like watching myself so. yeah in conclusion <laughs> in yeah. conclusion yeah um, I, I saw Chloe Zhao once uh, describe you as an actor who she said cannot be tamed uh, oh, again as a compliment <laughs> Is that something though that you you like to bring to set a sense of wildness? Because I'm also curious about how that, how a direct you know director to director mm. how they would interpret that. Maybe I love that. I love that. That's brilliant. Cannot be tamed. She said, oh, "Yeah, I seen that." She like put me in the same sentence as Wolf. I was like, "Wow, Chloe's amazing." <laughs> See, Chloe works with like you know. I mean, you watch the writer and that. It's yeah. you know how she gets performances from non actors and. You know, it's she has a way of working and a way of communicating with her actors as well. And it's she's so, um, you know, I put all my trust in her as well. And even with Eternals, there was there was ways because I can get quite intimidated sometimes or, you know, uh, you know, with lines and dyslexic and it's and I get a bit frazzled. And she has Mm -hmm. a way of working with me and understanding me and same with Martin and Emerald and all of the directors I've worked with, they understand me in a, in a sense. And um, I think Chloe's coming from that background of, you know, seeing non-actors not being trained. And I think maybe that's the tamed thing she's on about. Um, mm. I don't know, but, you know, I, I wasn't trained as an actor. So I, I think it's kind of trying to keep that spontaneity kind of not being tamed into one. But I, I like it, whatever it means. <laughs> You'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking um, the the audition tape of you for the Batman recently came out. Oh, yeah. And I, I thought that, it, you know, it's not every actor that would share their own audition tape on social media, but but you did do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did. Yeah, yeah I'm, you know what? I remember um, seeing that they were making the Batman and I was obsessed with the Riddler and I was like, oh, I'd love to play the Riddler and... I just thought about putting a little visual together in, in, in that way. Um, I'm literally just walking down the corridor and adding some music and a, and a feel to it and a, a swag and a, a, a mysterious element of thing going on. And I just, I wanted to 
put a visual out there. And again, I met Dylan Clark for, for general and I mentioned it to him. And um, you know, and, and then they seen it. But, I mean, Paul Dano does a, a, an exceptional job, and um, I'm not taking away from that fact. But yeah, I mean, the Joker came out of it, so um, I was quite. So, happy yeah, with so that. came out. Of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean? It's a great little short film, though. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to see the was... full movie? I mean, where is? <laughs> yeah. Who um, knows what that movie would look like? I'm always on that kind of thing. If if you want something. You know, you you, you you gotta go out and, and go for it, or you know. And and my thing is about if I'm if I'm making something like that, or if I want something, I'm gonna show you my version because again, one thing I, I can't guarantee I'll get the part or promise I'll get the part, but I can promise you that you're gonna see something that you've never seen, which is my version. Um, you know, because no, no one else can do that. Hmm. Yeah. God, I sound I'm so cur- cocky there. No one else can do that. But you know what I mean. Well, but it, it's true. Like, like you, actor, your really. version is, yeah, your version is your version. Yeah. No one else can do your version. And that's what I'm trying to say. You're going to bring your own thing to it. I, I totally get what you yeah. mean. How did, with Dominic, how did that go with, with Martin? Like, what was your spin on that character? Again, I'll, I, you know, I wanted everything to be, um, you know, totally pure and, and, and honest and, you know, no filter and, and and not play comedy or not play. I never go for playing anything. I just yeah. just totally in it. And the island done that itself. I mean, it immersed you and it made you feel. You know, you know. I remember one day I was looking to the right. It was the set, and then literally to the left is the the Atlantic Ocean and the states is the next stop. And you know, and just that looking to the left, I totally forgot where I was and. And it has that had that beautiful thing, that island of just kind of making you feel that that numb, that euphoric kind of that state of not even knowing where you are for like even if it's for two seconds. But um that all added to Dominic, you know, I really did that the island life, it really all added to Dominic. But I'd really I had a lot of fun playing him. And I do want to continue to play different characters that people don't think I can play and so an, an example, what's something that is way out there for you? Again, like uh, in, in another dark comedy would be, be amazing to do or just, you know, I, I don't want to pitch anything because it always gets <laughs> brought into the media. Barry's pitching, but it's Barry wants to work with him. I was like, no, no, no. Right. You know, I'll, I'll see what comes in. and But I do want to show range. I mean, that's the best thing you can hope for. I want to be challenged. I want to challenge myself above all. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Emerald Finale. You're mm-hmm. starring in a new film. I'm sure you can't say virtually anything about it, but is that another example of you getting that kind of opportunity? Yeah. You know what? Emerald gave me a great opportunity there, uh, and I'm very grateful to her. I, I mean that. She is um, she's exceptional and had an amazing time working with her, and I'm really excited to see what people think of this movie. I mean, it's shot beautifully as well, Linus, and it's just across the board... It's just amazing. And uh, again, just, yeah, we just wrapped it there and it's going to be feckin' amazing. Feckin' amazing. <laughs> I can promise you, I can promise you that. Yeah. If you brought some Martin McDonough to that script, that I, I would not complain. <laughs> some <No>. feckin'. <laughs> some feckin' this, feckin' that. Yeah. I know, I keep saying feckin' now, man. It's a great little word. It's it's not a coarse word, so you can kind of get away with it, you know? Some yeah. Feckin'. Ah. And it it shows that the the role the project really stayed with you. Yeah, it did. It did. You know, and again, I'm here in New York now, and 
you know, feeling it and being a part of it and seeing the lads last night and I haven't got to see Kerry yet, but, you know, just being, I'm very, very proud of this movie. Very proud of it. It's the most Irish movie you can be a part of. And, (laughs) you know. Well, I think that's interesting. I mean, this is an awards podcast. It's an incredibly Irish movie. And I'm wondering your general feeling on the fact of the movie having a kind of campaign life, getting Mm -hmm. out there for it, Um, especially for a movie that feels so Irish and it's, it's Mm -hmm. Martin's first Irish feature it's set in these incredible locations, as you were saying. Um, yeah, in terms of the movie getting that kind of embrace, how, how does that sit with you? I mean, if it goes there, it goes there. And, and you know, that's a bonus. Um, it's done incredibly well already and people seem to love it. And again, I think people relate with it because it's it's a movie that, you know, it doesn't hold anything else to it. There's no underlying thing to it. It's basically about a break. It's a basic, it's a massive breakup movie. And yeah. you know we've all we've all had that experience. I mean, most of us, anyways. And it, it, it you know, it, it can exist now or exist a hundred years ago, or you know, and that's the beauty of it. And I think that's a, a breath of fresh air again. Going to see a movie like that that doesn't, it's not about so and so or this and this, and it's just it's enjoyable, you know, and it makes you feel. And it reminds me of the field in a sense. You know, it's about a man in his field and. Or the old man and the gun, David Lowry's movie. You know, it's a movie star. Mm. You know, it's 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 just really fucking enjoyable. But um, if it does get, you know, and and, and hopefully, you know, I'm I'm really excited for it. That'll be another bonus. So. Okay, Rebecca, now let's hear your conversation with Ruben Osland, whose movie has been the discussion of, like, film world since Cannes, really. And I think now that Triangle of Sadness is opening in theaters, more people, myself included, get to find out, like, what everyone has been saying was so outrageous when the movie first premiered. Um, They were right. It is really outrageous. And I'm very curious about what it's like to talk to the person who made that happen. I think maybe this is what these two people have in common, because I sort of, you know, when you look at his films, he's pointing out a lot of the ugly side of uh, humanity in a sort of satirical way. But he is just a delight as well and (laughs) and totally loves people and loves life. And so um, I didn't know what to expect with him, but he was... Um, really interesting to talk to and talked a lot about how he sort of comes up with these ideas by talking to people. Like he'll say, I'm making a movie about airplanes. And then everyone he talks to will tell him an airplane story. And then he creates um, his ideas based on what he hears from other people. Uh, that sounds like a, a good way to have people come up to you and be like, that's what you think of me? Or like, that's how, <laughs> that's how you use my story? <laughs> that is terrifying in the context of what's in this movie, however. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah all... true. <laughs> It's so true. But he, um, the original idea for this movie came from his wife, who's a fashion photographer, and really showed him into this world of high fashion modeling. And and then he sort of explains where it went from there, because if you see this movie, it just goes to the wildest places. So it was interesting to see how he got there from here's the fashion world. Yeah. Yeah. You can imagine anyone who hears enough stories from that world in particular, they can spin out some crazy scenarios from there. Um, let's hear more from your conversation with Ruben Osland. I'm so excited to welcome Ruben Osland to the podcast. His latest film, Triangle of Sadness, won the palm in Cannes and is now available in theaters. Uh, Ruben, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So... I saw the film in Cannes, and I had such a wonderful experience seeing it with an audience. I think you really get to watch the audience react. So 
I'm curious for you, do you enjoy watching your films with an audience? Have you sat through with this one? What's that like for you? Well, you know, during the editing process, I, I do a lot of test screenings with an audience. I just want to sit down with an audience and watch the film in order to figure out how it should be edited, how, how the pace should be uh, in order to create a dynamic experience. So the first screenings you do with an audience is kind of painful <laughs> because then you have a movie that is maybe four hours long or three hours and 40 minutes, uh, but you know that you have to go through this in order to figure out exactly how to, to maneuver uh, the energy in the room of a cinema. And um, it, at that point, it's not so pleasant to watch it through with an audience. But as soon as you're starting to get a, get a rhythm uh, that is working out well, then, then it's enjoyable. At least with this film, it has been really, really enjoyable. Yeah. I think especially for a lot of people who haven't been in theaters for a couple of years because of the pandemic, this is just one of those movies that proves how special that experience is. But maybe you could tell me sort of where the initial idea for this movie comes from. Do you have sort of a lightning moment or is it something where you're thinking about an idea for a while and then the film comes together? Well, it started uh, eight years ago when I met my wife. We met in L.A. and she was there and doing a fashion shoot. Uh, she's a fashion photographer. And I got very curious about her profession because it's a kind of industry that you have been looking on from the outside and it's a little scary also, that industry, because it, everything that is connected to beauty, you know, beauty is also telling us so much about hierarchies. So, so I thought it was interesting to hear someone from the inside tell me different aspects of, of, of her work. And there was a few things that I got interested in already at that point. And one of them was um, in which way the fashion industry are selling their clothes. And if you look at the different strategies depending on the brand and how expensive the brand is. So she, for example, told me, like, if you look at campaigns for H&M or Zara, the, the more cheaper brands, uh, then the models are very often smiling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then uh, uh, the more expensive the brand gets, that smile is disappearing from the face of the models. And the most expensive brands like Balenciaga or Hermes or I don't know, then the, the models are basically looking down on you when you're looking on these big campaigns and posters and billboards and so on. And then you, of course, understand that, okay, when you buy clothes, you also buy a kind of camouflage uh, for the certain kind of social group that you connect yourself to. Uh, so if you want to be connected to the social group that is on top of our society, okay, you have to put a lot of money into it and then the more cheaper brands down there and then it's like and then you're lower down in the hierarchies so to speak so that was one aspect of it but then what really wanted me to make the the, the movie was when she started to tell me uh, stories about the models and she told me uh, quite much about the male models and I thought it was very interesting that they they earn like one fourth of what the female models are doing which is basically not so strange because women are consuming much more uh, fashion and beauty products and so on. But she told me also about um, a male model, a friend of hers, that when he was 19 years old, he worked as a car mechanic and uh, he were he were living on the countryside of Germany and he, he went into Hamburg, which is the city where the fashion industry is in Germany, and he got street costed. Someone came up to him and asked, do you want to try out to be a, a model? 
And you know, it's not really a high status profession to be a male model in the same way it is for the women. So he was like, oh, okay, I can try that. <laughs> and then, you know, two years later, he's one of the best paid male models in the, in the industry. And, and he does a perfume campaign, which is the most prestigious thing you can do as a model. Uh, then it's only your face and, you know, like you, your face becomes connected to the brand. And those campaigns are, they are la lasting much longer. And the, if I showed you these images, you would recognize this guy and you would say, ah, it's him. So now, now this car mechanic, young man, is 21 years old and have gotten used to a complete different lifestyle in only two years. So I got very interested in the aspect of beauty as a currency. So, you know, that beauty can make us climbing class society. And um, uh, the thing with being a model is, of course, that the, the career is not very long. And the female models, they can say things like, you know, yeah, I'm going to marry rich, I'm going to be a trophy wife. That's the way for me to maintain the same, how to say, lifestyle and get out of the industry. But for men, it's not really the same thing. And what happened to this, this guy was that when he were there up on the top, he, he all of a sudden realizes, oh, I'm losing my hair. I, I'm getting bald. And he, he had a talk to his agent and his agent said, okay, maybe you have two more years, depending on like how it goes with your hair problem. <laughs> but, but we also have another problem. And it is that you are so connected with this perfume brand so no one wants to book you on the same level, the same kind of prestigious jobs. So uh, it would be really, really great if you get together with a famous girlfriend. <laughs> and this, this guy goes like, okay, but I want to be in love. Then the agent's like, but, yeah, okay, but maybe you can find a win-win. You know? <laughs> um, so I thought it was very interesting to look at how, how to say the strategy of economy goes down to every single individual and we are starting to look at each other as like a business model and even into the most private parts of our lives we are we are relating to ourselves like a business that that was the starting point basically yeah i mean we've we hear about those sort of hollywood uh, you know, actor and actress uh, dating relationships for promotion as well. But I, I, it, it's funny to see it play in the modeling world in your film. And it, so how much research did you do? You know, because I think you set this on a cruise for a part of the film and the sort of luxury experience. There's a lot of, you know, one percenters on this cruise and, and they're all very full characters. So I'm curious, where does that inspiration come from? Do you do a lot of research or how do you build these characters? Of course, I do a lot of research, and uh, I think I was inspired of like a couple of different characters because I fell in love with different dialogues, basically. So I had this uh, British couple that it's arms dealers, and I, and I love the I, the awkward situation, you know, when you're sitting around the dining table and you ask them, "So what do you do?" And they go like, "Well, our products products have been involved." Yeah, in, 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 in conflicts for democracy all over the world. It's like, what kind of product is that? Well, basically, our best-selling product is the hand grenade, you know? So, and then uh, one, one idea I had was that I wanna actually wanted to portray them all as nice. I didn't want to make them like ignorant or mean to someone else or so on, uh, because uh, I think that, that is maybe the conventional way when we look at class, that 
when we describe people that are on the bottom, they are genuine and, and, and generous. And when you look at uh, rich people, they are egoistic and uh, uh, superficial. And I, want, I didn't want to go down that road because I don't believe it's true. And then, of course, I had this idea about having a, a captain on the boat that was a Marxist. So it was a lot of the things that came out of the idea of this Marxist captain getting really drunk together with the Russian oligarch and having a lot of fun when they are discussing their different political standpoints. And um, my idea that they should get so drunk so they start replaying with the, uh, the microphone system during a storm and uh, that the captain should read from the communistic manifest to the, these vomiting passengers of a luxury yacht. So. <laughs> Oh, that scene will never leave my head, I think. <laughs> it's just such a great scene. And I'm curious, um, specifically for that scene, you know, on screen, it looks like such intense chaos. But what was it like actually shooting it for you and, and the actors? It was an intense chaos because <laughs> <laughs> we were shooting on a set that was rocking. So we had uh, the set built on a gimbal. So we built the dining room one of the corridors and a cabin that we could rearrange to make it look at many different cabins. And, you know, when you shoot something on a set that is rocking and you're spending like 10 hours a day on that set, people get seasick for real. Uh, so part of the crew had to eat seasick pills uh, in order to manage managing the shooting. Oh, my gosh. So um, when this film came out, or at Cannes, I guess, was its debut, and now it's played in a lot of theaters. Have you gotten any surprising reactions to it? Because I think people react very differently after experiencing it. I mean, if you go into the political parts of it, some people are saying, it's too simple. It's too simple. Like, you know, when, when you get a... I got a one person that was really... how to say, He was standing up and was, um, was angry, actually. And, and I said, give the mic to that gentleman. And he's like, okay, it's too simple. And I tried to ask him, what is too simple? And he didn't really want to point out. So, okay, is it, is it maybe this thing about the clause society that it's dealing with? And um, I go in and talk a little bit about uh, Rutger Bregman, that is an author that I like a lot. And he had been in Davos to talk to philanthropists about his uh, latest book at that, that time. It was called Utopia for Realist. And he was starting to talk about like philanthropy and that he, he believed in like, you know, that we should pay tax. Like that we, we have to stop the bullshitting and pay taxes. And when I tell this to this guy, he, he leaves. And afterwards they, they are telling me, you know, that's one of the richest people in, in France. It was in, a, in Paris, the screening was. And he's a, he's a big philanthropist. So I guess that um, that's the most surprising reaction that I have had so far. <laughs> so interesting. Um, it's interesting because I, I would say this film is very complicated. There's a whole third act that I don't want to talk about because I think people really enjoy being surprised where the film goes. But I'm, I am curious, when you write a, a screenplay like this, do you know where it's going to end up when you start? Do you have the ending in mind already at the beginning? Yes, I do. I, not, not maybe from the absolute beginning. The project for me started to, with like the thematic and the, the aspect of looking at beauty as a currency. And then I knew that I wanted to go to luxury yacht. And then I came up with the last part. And I mean, what I think is interesting to change environment where, where the characters are dealing uh, with, the, with the situations that is put up to them in the film is that you can 
turn the pyramid around with some some setups. You can you can you can point out like okay, in this kind of environment, our behavior is going to change. Or here we have to relate to okay, the captain is highest in the hierarchy, and and so on. So I I knew that I wanted to to have this this three part structure. Yeah, the shift of power is just so fascinating in the in the film, and I think makes it so enjoyable to watch. Um, I'm curious for you as a a writer, director, what part of this filmmaking process do you find most difficult, whether that's pre-production or writing or directing or post? What's the hardest part for you? The pre-production is always quite fun, I think. You know, when I love to talk about uh, projects with basically everyone I meet, and I, I like to tell them about, okay, this is what you're going to experience in the film. And so often when I do that, people are coming back with input to me and that sometimes they're not like genius. So I just, I just bring it in, I steal it, and I put it into the script. <laughs> uh, so that is that. And then there, all the possibilities are there. You know, you can go whatever direction you want. Then when it starts to narrow down and you start to decide, ah, this is exactly how I want it, then starts the struggle of, of like, how do I visualize this? How do I manage to do it in a way that I can, that I like imagining it in my head? And from that point, it's a struggle from every single day when you aren't shooting, for example. Every single day when I go to set and I'm, I'm uh, shooting, I feel like, oh my God, this is turning out so bad. And uh, hopefully you manage to, to, like with the acting and the camera angles and so on, find a way that you like how you're shooting the scene. Uh, and and if, if you're lucky, then you feel like, wow, it, it was better than I expected. And then when it comes to the editing, it's also, it's also like, um, it's about stamina, really, to be a director, I would say. Um, and, and the film features a ton of amazing performances. And I think seeing Charles B. Dean perform in this film, it just felt like she was going to go on to be such a big star. And, and how has it been for you to, you know, because she, she recently passed away, to have the film come out and not have her present for this? Well, uh, it was, uh, this is... This is almost only one month ago, a little bit yeah. longer. And we were supposed to go on this tour together where we were going to the different festivals and presenting the film and with the ensemble. And for me, this was, it was a film where we were like really collaborating quite good, all of us together. And uh, I think it was, it was a, uh, Shalbe was a team player, really. And she was lifting up her colleagues and she was lifting up everybody in the film crew. And so she gave a lot of energy to us when we were, to all of us when we were making the film. And to, to, to get that message was, of course, a shock. Um, and it felt very empty to not, to not have her next to us. And maybe also especially, we got to share Cannes together, which, is, which I'm happy for. But as you said, it would be so interesting also to see where where this would take her and which direction she would go after this movie. And of course, of course, then her, her family is dealing with something that is um, much harsher than, um, than us that made the film. But yeah, she will be missed. Yeah. So when you look at, you know, Force Majeure, The Square, sort of your recent trio of films, uh, what do you sort of see in common about the stories you're telling now? Do you feel like there's a, a through line for you? I think they are all kind of different in movies, but maybe the common red thread is that there's a main character that is dealing with gender expectations in some way. And uh, 
it's a little bit of like modern time issues or contemporary time issues of, of being a man that is uh, in all of the three films. So even though I didn't think about the films like this on forehand, but when I was, when I was cutting Triangle of Sadness, I felt again, okay, it's a, it's a trilogy about being a, a man in, in, in our times. And I think also it can be quite interesting sometimes to look back on the three different male characters that goes through the film and compare them. And, and yeah, maybe, maybe it's a good starting point for, for an interesting discussion of being of how it is to be a man. I feel like this is uh, perfect for a college course in gender yeah, studies. Okay. They should show your three don't, films. <laughs> don't go, don't go the same way as this male character. <laughs> Avoid these kind of actions. Yeah. When you when you look back on your film so far, do you have one that's your favorite, or is it impossible to pick a favorite child? Uh, it, it, it is a little bit like that, of <laughs> course. But I made a film called Play, uh, two thousand and eleven, and. Play was dealing with a certain kind of events that took place in my home city in Gothenburg in Sweden on the West Coast, where there was a group of very young people robbing other young people in the center of the city. And these robbers, they had one thing in common, and it was that they were black. And it created a very controversial image that provoked a lot of questions on what we project on skin color, of, of prejudice, uh, etc., um, so that film, I mean, when that film was released in Sweden, I felt there was really a lack of discussion about representation, about like how uh, we are re- reproducing uh, prejudice uh, with the fiction movies and popular culture, etc. So that film, uh, I, I think it like, it created such a such a debate, like in in the Swedish society, that I'm very very proud of, and um, I mean for me that is the goal when I make the movies that try to reach out as wide as possible, of course, because that's a part of if you want to use your films in order to provoke questions, and um, but then that to create a discussion about okay, who do we want to be? What kind of society do we want? Yeah, it's funny. I interviewed Woody Harrelson in Cannes, and he mentioned Play as a film that made him very interested in you as a filmmaker. So people should definitely check that out if they haven't seen it yet. And so I know you're already working on your next film. From what I understand, it's set on a plane. Can you tell me a little Mm -hmm. bit more about it and and where you are in the process? I can tell you how it ends. (laughs) Don't tell us that. No, I (laughs) want that as a surprise. Okay. Okay. Uh, No, but uh, the title is The Entertainment System is Down. And it takes place on a long-haul flight. And I have not decided 100% which flight it should be. Maybe Stockholm, LA or London, Sydney, Sydney or something. So one of these flights that is over 15 hours. And uh, what happens is that quite soon after takeoff, uh, the passengers get the announcement from the crew that unfortunately the screens on your seats in front of you is not working. It will not be any entertainment. Uh, <laughs> and... When iPads and phones is slowly charging out, we have these modern human beings have to deal with being bored. And we don't have those small screens where we can distract ourselves constantly and like, you know, dopamine scrolling like this. And I have been interested in a sociological study that I thought pointed out a little bit of, of how we deal with the, these, these days with this distraction that we constantly are seeking. 
and it was uh, scientists that had or researchers that had put a test person in a room and asked them to do nothing. And they didn't know, the test persons didn't know that the time limit was 15 minutes. And when you ask them afterwards what they felt, how this was, they were like, this, this was horrible. They thought it was horrible. So the researcher, they added a feature to the test and it was that there was a button that the test persons could push voluntarily. They didn't have to do it. And if they pushed this button, they gave themselves an electrical shock that was very painful, but not, that was not harming them. And the absurdity was like that uh, almost over 40% of the test person actually choose to push this button. That I, so, so I think it's something about that, uh, like being left alone with your thoughts, that we, we don't really like it. <laughs> uh, it's going to be interesting to look at our behavior in, in, a, in, the, in the airplane body, almost like a sociological uh, lab. Yeah. And where are you in the process? You're writing or you're done? or. I'm, I'm basically in this process now that I'm telling people about the project and, and they're coming back to, with fun stories or things that they have observed when they have been on flights. Or, uh, and also I get to know how to tell the film. So when I know how to tell the film from the beginning to the end, basically, at least I have to have a very fixed frame, then I can sit down and write it down. Yeah. Yeah, I think everyone has a plain horror story, so I'm sure you're going to get lots of material. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you have one? Yes, but I'm not going to tell it here. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> maybe later. But okay. um, I, I really appreciate you giving me some of your time. And for everyone listening, please go watch Triangle of Sadness in theaters. It's a really wonderful experience to watch it with an audience, as I've mentioned. Uh, so thank you, Ruben. Thank you so much. That does it for today's show. We'll be back on Thursday with our regular roundtable conversation. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com, on Twitter at HWD, and on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. 